Hey there, product lovers. Welcome to the Product Love Podcast, hosted by Eric Bodick, co-founder and chief evangelist of Pendo and super fan of all things product. Product Love is the place for real insights into the world of crafting products as Eric interviews founders, product leaders, venture capitalists, authors, and more. So let's dive in now with today's Product Love podcast. Welcome over to Product. Today I'm here with Michael Greenwich, who's the founder and CEO of WorkOS. Michael, why don't you kick this off by giving us a little overview of your background? Sure thing. So this is the second company I've started, and I was thinking to kind of talk a little bit about the background and the company. I could kind of tell my story and how I came to start getting obsessed with APIs and enterprise software platforms and uh, these things that are not typically the things people get excited about. So if you rewind about 10 years ago, I was an undergrad at MIT actually studying physics and started building iPhone apps and getting into to writing software just for fun. And during that time, I actually met this guy named Drew Houston, who was visiting campus and giving a talk, who's the founder of Dropbox. And fast forward a few months, get to know them in the team, and I actually leave school for about six months and do an internship at Dropbox. And uh, after the experience in that company, it was really just like, holy moly, this is what I want to do. I want to get into startups. And Dropbox was in this interesting place where you know, it was kind of an enterprise software company without realizing it. It was really framed more towards a consumer product company, but you know, the users were using it at the workplace and it eventually became a, an enterprise software company. So after that experience, went back to school, knew that I wanted to go into software, switched to CS, and I got really obsessed with email. I remember talking with Drew actually about some ideas around email, and I wrote my bachelor's thesis project on email, and nights and weekends was hacking on the IMAP protocol and spec and stuff. And so when I finished school, I was like, hey, I think I want to do something around the startup world. I think I want to try to change the way people use email. And I had this perspective that email is really the database of your life. It's this core technology that tons of people use. And I wanted to build a product that improved people's lives for that. I looked at the workplace and saw that everyone uses web browsers. You know, everyone has files. Everyone also has email. So I wanted to build something for that. So I hacked on this for a little while longer, ended up starting a company with my friend Christine, raised some money, and we set out to build essentially an Outlook killer, something that would replace Outlook and Gmail. So hire a team, spent a ton of time on this product, really obsessing around the design and product experience. A lot of the stuff I'd learned at Dropbox. It was called Nihilus Mail, it was open source. A lot of people loved it. Uh, we bring it to market, tons of people download it, bring it to work and start using it. And we're sort of off to the races. We've built a product that people really love. And it's tremendously difficult to do that. And I'm sure anybody that's ever built really well-designed and also really performant and stable and, and something as challenging as email. So we achieved that, we roll it out. And, and really, I took Dropbox as a model for how to build a company. Said, hey, I'm going to do bottom-up SaaS. So anybody can download this, anybody can get started. They can take it to the workplace and have it be their email client. So through that, just like Dropbox, we get a bunch of users and people start using it. And about a year after launching it, we'd, we'd fixed most of the bugs in this app and it's really stable. And we're like, we're ready to go make money. We're ready to monetize this product that we spent several years building. And I remember at that point, I just did the same thing as Dropbox. So listed out the companies that were the top users of this app and said, hey, I'm going to go sell to them. I'm going to go sell to the organizations that are already using our products. Like, it should be like shooting fish in a barrel. What happened was I would go into those orgs and say, hey, I'm Michael from Nihilus. We'd love to chat with you about a team license. And they would say, oh, talk to this group. These are the people that buy software for, the, for our company. He's usually the, the director of IT or the IT organization. So I go in and give him a demo and say, hey, you know, there's 100 people here using the product. I remember talking to Uber, uh, one of our top users. 
And that was the very first time I'd ever talked to anyone in IT, ever. And the conversation, instead of being one where they put down a credit card and was ready to buy, they said, oh, who are you? We didn't even know about this product. And as I unraveled this, I found that there was a bunch of features and functionality that they started asking me for and were requiring. Everything from security reviews to compliance features to security. And they said, hey, if you don't have these things, we literally can't buy your app. There's no way we're going to be able to, to use it. In fact, we need to turn it off for the organization. So, you know, at a point where we had this amazing product market fit and scaling and people love and users love the product, we couldn't actually sell it into the enterprise. And it was essentially the end of life for that product. Um, it was a really tough time because we realized we weren't going to be able to make enough money for individuals paying for it. And there was this huge gap to get over to sell it to the enterprise. And that's the foundational concept around WorkOS, like me hitting this wall around that product. That's what led to starting this company. So at Nihilus, it was really sad. We unfortunately ended up shutting down that product. You know, we ended up hard pivoting the company and, and becoming more of a transactional email system, just kind of monetizing the guts of the email client, but had to essentially send that product out to pasture. And I left the company a few months later and started thinking about what to do next. This problem just stayed in my head though, around we had kind of done everything right. Users love the product. Why couldn't we monetize it? Why couldn't we make money? And I looked around the world of other productivity apps and saw the exact same thing playing out at tons of these companies who were able to get user love and get people to adopt the product. But when it came time to actually monetizing it and actually growing the business, they weren't able to. And so that's really the foundation of WorkOS as a concept. What we're doing is trying to solve this infrastructural issue where products need enterprise features to actually be deployed in those environments. There's a bunch of different features and functionality you need to add to a product, but it turns out no matter what you're building, they're the same features. So if you're building a wiki tool, you're going to need these same features as if you're building a design tool, a communication tool, a project management tool, what have you. So with WorkOS, we put all that into a platform for companies and we help them make their app enterprise ready. And hopefully going forward, no one will have this experience again of uh, having to shut down their, their baby. <laughs> yeah, we definitely don't want people having to shut down their baby. So tell me about, about those components. What are they? So there's a bunch of different stuff. I think the, the interesting thing is you really have to go talk to a lot of people in IT to see the full spectrum because each org is a little bit different, but there are really strong commonalities across it. So the first thing that people will always ask for is some kind of single sign-on experience. So they'll say, hey, authentication and user identity is the core of every app. We don't want users logging into this other tool with a separate username and password. We have an identity system we want to use. The problem with building that is those identity systems are fragmented. Some people might use Okta. Some people might use Google login. Microsoft has something called ADFS. And so there's this really, really long tail. You know, VMware has one. Symantec has one. You have to build across all of them. And that's what lets users log in. So that's one of the first ones. Along that line, another thing is user provisioning and deprovisioning automatically. So if you're onboarding your first user to a tool, you don't really need this. But if you go sell to an organization, say with 2,000 employees, the IT admin is not going to want to log in and manually add and remove people. They want to connect your app to their directory. So as soon as they hire people, they immediately get accounts. As soon as people leave the organization, you know, their accounts are removed. They're deactivated. And so this kind of infrastructure, is, it's product layer infrastructure. It's not you know, like the servers that you're running on. It's connecting the application that you're building to the services used by IT. And the challenge in this really is that it's, it's really quite fragmented. There's tons of different directory systems. One company might be using Workday, another one's using Gusto, another one is using Active Directory, and there's dozens more. 
And so it ends up becoming this integration burden for the engineering team to build. And I should say also, these features are not exactly what engineers get excited about building. Oftentimes, they're not what PMs get excited about thinking about either, because they're sort of out of left field. They're not in the core unique domain of your product. But realistically, if you don't build these things, you're not going to be able to close those customers. Yeah. And it's, it's, there's a big gap, right? When people like in your Nihilus case, were building more or less for the end user moving to the enterprise. There's lots of different things to consider when you're trying to sell to much larger companies with large IT departments, CIOs, et cetera, right? It's a totally different persona. I think this is, you know, I was blindsided by this completely, uh, not realizing that the IT admin or the CIO, you know, the people that manage software in the org, you're no longer building for the end user. You need to build for them. And you need to have this kind of split brain mentality and all the empathy your team has built up for the end user, in our case, the person sending and receiving email, you know, doesn't map to what the IT admin wants. And so you, you almost have to start from scratch to figure out who that person is, how to satisfy them, how to check their boxes and really make them happy. You know, in these companies, those people will pick an inferior product to adopt just because it's, it has certain compliance dimensions or certain features. It's not because they don't see a better product out there in the market. It's because their job is to enforce security or compliance with your practices across the org. Sometimes these even come from the legal side, like, you know, their hands are tied. Yeah. So what, what should product managers be thinking about when they're building for enterprise companies? And what should they be wary of when they're kind of crossing this enterprise chasm? So I think the top thing is believe what IT tells you. That's the number one thing uh, that I would say. And, and talk to a lot of them. When you go talk to an end user, you know, there's always the joke of uh, they'll ask for the faster horse instead of a car. That's not the case for IT. For IT admins, they have a list specifically of features that they need built in order to integrate it with their system because they're adopting new products left and right every day. And if you build it, they will come, you know, if you have that use case. So I think that's the first thing I encourage people to do is it's not rocket science. You just have to have a lot of those conversations. And this is another thing here is that there's less you know, innovation you need to do. You don't need to invent a new authentication protocol or do something totally different. You kind of just need, you know, the feature built. You need to actually roll it out. And so the creativity that you usually bring to building, thinking about features from a PM perspective, doesn't necessarily map to thinking about enterprise functionality. There's a depth of complexity in that stuff, though. I just want to emphasize there's so much fragmentation and complexity around that, that it's, it's not as simple as just pull it off the shelf and, and do it. There's a lot of discovery you have to do. And then last thing I would say is, is there's a lot of risk, actually, if you don't do this. A lot of companies think that, hey, we'll just do the bottom-up you know, SMBs and get those users and just, just build that business. You know, Going back to where I started off at Dropbox, I think Dropbox, it's fair to say, didn't focus on the enterprise for a super long time. It's one of the reasons I didn't see it when I was there you know, early on. And that was fine for Dropbox in those early days, and they were making a lot of money and growing. But that's kind of the reason that Box exists as a company. I mean, you know, like people were leaving Dropbox, going to Box because they needed these features. And I, I think there's a real danger that if you don't invest in this and you have a first to market product or a market leading product, somebody can swoop in, clone what you think are the critical features, but focus on those things for IT. And, and those deals don't really come back. You know, the companies that have switched like Coca-Cola using Box is not going to rip that out in a short timeline. So it's a really tough thing because you almost have to build up a brand new team internally to focus on this. And it's a big organizational shift you have to make with your whole company. Yeah, it sounds like it. And, and you know, we're talking about, and we, I think we touched on some of them, but what features do you need to build to make your product irresistible to the enterprise? 
I would say, you know, there's, there's a long list of like small, you know, individual features, but they really fall into a, a few different buckets. So the first thing I would say is having control over the application is really important for IT. And this comes across as like configuring it in certain ways, controlling how users sign in. So single sign-on is, is a part of that. And essentially setting it up to map to how the organization already uses software. So they, you know, might use Okta, they might provision users, you know, with a skim endpoint to their workday, you know, service or what have you, but, but giving them the control of the application and configuring it in that way. That's the first thing. The second thing is visibility. And so they want to actually see what's happening inside of the product. The most common way to do this is to have like an audit trail, an activity log of what happens in the product. For something like Dropbox, this is who shared a file with whom, who exported things, who viewed certain things. In many industries, this is literally legally required. It's a hardline requirement for compliance purposes, especially if you're in the financial services space, you literally can't use a product that doesn't have an audit trail. And so visibility and how the product is behaving and performing, they care a lot about. And then the last one is trust. So trust comes in a lot of different dimensions. It could be you know, your service not going down, signing an SLA with them, having a more formal contractual agreement. Enterprise customers will often want it on their paper. So they'll want the agreement to be on their paperwork. But this also comes across in getting actually kind of compliance certifications. So things like SOC 2 or HIPAA compliance for the healthcare industry, ISO 27001 standard is common in Europe. These are all ways for you to communicate that your system is, is trustworthy. And you know, there's a lot of, should, you know, to, to reemphasize, there's a lot of smaller things inside of those buckets, but by and large, that's what I found the themes are from IT. And what do you think product managers or founders tend to get wrong when they do this? Is it just not listening to IT and taking them at face value or are there other things? I think people dramatically underinvest in this area. They think I'll just put a PM on this part-time and kind of, you know, we'll be able to skate by. Because what happens is if you have a bottom-up self-serve driven business, you'll only hear about these things occasionally coming in because the majority of your business is that self-serve. And because you don't have these features, it's almost like a catch-22. You're disqualifying users right off the bat. You know, they're not even signing up or not even using it. And so I'd say like under-investing in it or not seeing it as an opportunity is one thing that companies miss a lot. These companies also, I think another thing that people get wrong, if you can sell like a handful of these larger deals, they can be revenue that can propel your company through any sort of downturn. It's really, really robust you know, from a business perspective, you don't need to completely transition your product or become completely an enterprise org, but you know, th th there's much less churn around this and your just business fundamentals will look better across the board if you can get a handful of these in. So that's another thing I would say. And uh, the third thing I would say is just engaging with them in general. A lot of founders are just say, I don't want to become an enterprise company. That'll ruin our design focus. That'll ruin our engineering or product focus. Like enterprise is gross. Yuck. I don't want to do that. And that doesn't really last. Eventually, you will need to do this if you want to expand your company. And so I think instead, what I encourage founders to do is embrace this, talk about it as being an eventuality, and kind of imprint their own DNA onto it and be able to do it in their own way. You know, today, I believe Slack, like a third of their team works on enterprise features and functionality. It's a huge part of their core innovation, and they fully embraced it. And that's been necessary for them to compete with products like Microsoft Teams. So... Overall, though, I would say people just underinvest in it. They don't realize the scale of the opportunity, especially, especially first-time founders, and especially people coming from like a kind of a consumer background or social background or design background. You know, people that start companies that have been in the enterprise software world, 
there's no question that they're going to do this. And they just go run straight after. And it's a reason why some of those businesses are able to scale up much, much faster. Um, so it's a lot of it's just perspective. Yeah, I mean, some of it is underinvesting, but do you also think they just don't know the order of magnitude of effort that it takes, like, you know, going through things like SOC compliance and and all that, you know, the, the different things that the enterprise is going to want to see? Do you think they really understand the level of effort too? Often not. It's a bit of a rabbit hole. And I think this is what, you know, I've experienced even running this company. You know, we realize how much more complex it gets and gets. It's kind of it's one of those problems with fractal complexity. You know, the more you look at it, the more you see. And there, there's an aspect here of, you know, the unknown unknowns, right? To kind of quote Rumsfeld, like you don't know what you don't know in this arena. And the unfortunate news is the fragmentation issue around IT is not going away. It's actually not centralizing. It's becoming more and more fragmented. And so the problem space is actually growing. And Every organization, this is kind of why we're building a company around this, every B2B cloud app is going to need to have an enterprise team with substantial engineering resources unless they can you know, use something like WorkOS. Very similar to in the past where you'd have to like run your own data center or like manage your own payments infrastructure. These are things that you shouldn't have to worry about in-house. So I think one of the challenges is it becomes something that's critical to your business success. It's a repeatable problem in the market. But up until today, there's been no repeatable solution. And it's been something you had to become good at, even though it's not your core competency. Now, you do solve a lot of those problems with WorkOS for people. We solve as many as we can today. Yeah. And, and it's, it's, a big, it's a big effort. WorkOS is coming up on our second birthday, almost two years old. And, and we have a bunch of people using it already. But we really focus today on authentication, user management, directory integration, the skim stuff that I mentioned, connecting to Workday. These are really the primitives. I really do think about WorkOS as like an OS, an operating system. You know, the, the joke that I, I tell people sometimes is, you know, there used to be a platform that gave developers consistent identity, user management, all the kind of APIs you needed for security and, and building an application. It's extremely, extremely developer-friendly application platform. And on the other side, it had all the bells and whistles that the IT department needed to be able to manage stuff and deploy it and roll it out. And it was called Microsoft Windows. And it did pretty well, you know, and, and that was a tremendous platform for people to build apps on top of, really, really an application platform. What's happened is that we've moved to the web, we've moved to, you know, this different kind of scaffold for those apps, and that doesn't exist anymore. If you're building, say, like a spreadsheet tool, you have to do all the heavy lifting under the hood today for like authentication, identity, user management, security, all this stuff that's not unique to your business. And so what we're trying to do as we think through us building this as a product and service is just chip away at those one by one, put it into the product and provide that as infrastructure to developers. It's going really well so far, but there's still a huge amount to do. <laughs> yes, there always is, right? So that's a good transition to talking about how you guys build product internally. I mean, there's a lot of challenges like you were just talking about, about understanding what customers want. You mentioned uh, faster horses. You know, talk to me about your product framework, how you guys differentiate what you're building today versus later customer wants and needs? Yeah, it's changed a lot for me personally. So I can talk about that, how I've, I've grown. Because as the founder and CEO now of two companies and really being the one driving forward product at both of them, the way I've pursued this has changed. So my first company at Nihilus, I had sketchbooks full of ideas for email clients and email systems. I designed our API that eventually became the Nihilus API and literally sat next to the designer and we worked together. I was the kind of the chief product officer in that company. And in that, in that regard, I had a very clear idea of what I wanted to occur. I knew exactly the features I wanted, the experiences I wanted to give. 
And thankfully, there were a lot of people that agreed with that, and that's the reason why they love the product. The way I've been doing it at WorkOS is kind of a 180 from that. And when I started the company, I wasn't obsessed with authentication or SSO or directory or, or audit logging. I didn't even know what audit logging was, but I got obsessed with this problem space. And I think instead of falling in love with a solution, I fell in love with the problem space around making apps enterprise ready and this, this mass transformation that's happening around IT and cloud you know, software and new future of work tools and all that. And that has let me be sort of agnostic to any individual feature or technology. And so I've gone out to people in the world of IT to figure out what to build. So I've talked to, you know, before starting the company, talked to a ton of CIOs, the people who ultimately would need this functionality. I talked to a ton of startups that were going through this, you know, transition. And I also talked to companies who had successfully done it. So like PMs at companies like Box or Slack that were responsible for the enterprise features. And through that experience, I just figured out what bubbled up in terms of the functionality. So it turns out single sign-on was the most important thing and, and that's what bubbled up. So it comes from, I think, really acutely listening to users. Now, the second thing I was going to say is that, you know, in terms of figuring out wants and needs for customers, I always just think about how customers are so good at describing problems. Like they're in the, the pit of it, you know, they feel the pain of whatever problem they're having, but they're very, very bad at describing the solution to that problem. And you shouldn't expect them to. And I think that's one thing that really defines the role of, of oftentimes PMs is like, that's what you're trying to figure out is listen to that synthesize it, come up with a solution. That's our job as the company. And, you know, in terms of wants versus needs, we think about this every day because there's so much to build and we have to hard prioritize stuff to be able to focus. And I found you can just kind of hear it in their voice. There's things that come across as nice to haves. You float the idea of, hey, would you use this kind of thing? They're like, oh yeah, we're curious about that. Maybe we would need that. But when you get down to brass tacks, there's clearly things that are kind of the hair on fire problems or I've heard that, that phrase, the vitamin versus the painkiller. And in my mind, like when I've, you know, just talked to so many users, that really comes across really clearly. I think you have to say no to a lot in order to actually prioritize. That's probably the hardest thing at a company where there's so much open space to build is really saying, hey, here's where we're going to focus right now. Long term, we hope to do everything, but you can't boil the ocean. Yeah, those are the interesting conversations, right? And often difficult conversations about what you do first. You know, how, how do you moderate that inside your company? Who gets the final say? What different people are involved in making those decisions? Oh, gosh, that's the most fun part of the process. Uh, <laughs> you know, and it's, it's changed a lot. I think as a company grows, you know, when it started, I kind of laid out a vision. And I was like, here's the first thing we should build. Let's do it. This is the experiment. We're going to build this prototype. We're going to get it out the door and show it to some people. And in, in that scenario, I'm very much the final decision maker. And it's just build what I say. It diverges from that very quickly. And it diverges not because other people start talking to users inside the company and have ideas and are more acutely aware of the problem space as well. So today, my job has shifted from just purely defining, you know, the solution in that to actually constantly trying to reemphasize the problem. Like I mentioned, falling in love with the problem instead of falling in love with the solution. I try to just keep bringing us back to that. What is the problem that we're solving at a, at a higher level? And I think an aspect of that is also just trying to pursue truth. It's really easy to look at what other people have done and try to just kind of crib off of that and incrementally improve things. And teams need, you know, support and encouragement to have the you know, discipline to think really deeply about something and the courage to put forward a brand new idea. And so my job is to support a team that I, I think is incredibly talented at coming up with that. Probably the job I have the most today is kind of being like the ultimate QA. You know, I'm kind of the ultimate nitpicker. Like right now we're doing a, a redesign of our documentation and 
you know, I'm finding like inconsistencies and like drop shadows or borders around things. And, and uh, I find that that kind of like final checkoff is something that I'll probably keep doing for a while. But everything in between, you know, I kind of do the very first thing, what's the vision, the very last thing right before we ship. And, and everything in between, I find the team with the right context is able to do an incredible job. So talk to me about that team, you know, and particularly the product team. What do you look for when hiring? You know, how do you test for it? So we don't really have a pure product team right now. It's pretty weird. And I've talked to a lot of other API companies about this and tried to figure out, you know, what's too. Because when you're building an API, it's so different than building a product where the, the surface area that the end user touches is a UI or screen or, or some other experience. Our product is the API. The way our API defined is defined is the product for developers. And so it's very hard to make product decisions if you don't have an engineering background or an engineering you know, mindset or you haven't worked as an engineer. I think that's one of the reasons why you know, I think a lot about product, but I built a bunch of stuff, worked as a software engineer, studied CS, kind of understand the core of that. You know, our, our designer in-house used to work as an engineer and studied CS in college also. And today we actually don't have any PMs. We've started talking to folks and started interviewing people, but we've realized anyone in that space kind of needs to have been an engineer in some way for an API product company. I think that'll change as we grow. And there's, you know, the different persona of the IT admin or the, the CIO that uses our product as well. But today being so developer focused, you know, the type of people that are willing to obsess over API documentation or obsess over, you know, attribute naming and JSON responses for an endpoint, you got to be a geek engineer to care about that stuff. And we find our users care about it too. So that's been a pretty big challenge. Yeah, it's, it's interesting because I'm a big proponent of like product managers don't have to come from engineering backgrounds. But in, in your case, because of what you sell and what you're building, having a product team and, and especially as that grows in the future that has a strong engineering background is probably going to be essential. It's probably one of the things that will be the most unique about WorkOS compared to other companies as we hire is building that. And, and I think it's the case across the board. You know, if you think about us hiring and marketing, for example, like product marketing, that person's got to be able to speak to engineers because that's a key stakeholder and, you know, the person that we really deploy to. Even as we've started building our early go-to-market team and thinking about sales and customer support, you know, if you're effectively selling to an engineer and helping them, you know, sign a deal and, and support their, their product as they grow, you know, you got to be able to kind of hang with the engineers. And so very, very technical salespeople, I think, are a different breed. There are a lot of companies who have done this super well. It's just very different than you know, selling other types of SaaS where the end user might not be a developer. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> it's interesting. I was just thinking uh, about physics for a second. And, I, you know, you started in a physics world. What do you think would have happened if uh, you didn't meet Drew? Are you, would you be teaching physics somewhere? Or do you think you would have still made your way over to software? Gosh, you know, I think I would have just gotten pulled in anyway towards it in some way. I mean, it has felt like a unstoppable force of gravity pulling me in. You know, in between the first and the second company, I didn't know if I was going to do it again. You know, I was pretty tired and it's a really hard experience having a product that you care deeply about and you love and building a team that you love around that and having that all evaporate because the market's not there. And I had a period of a couple months where I was wandering around Thailand with like growing a beard and doing Muay Thai in the jungle and, you know, like kind of soul searching and helped, you know, advise a few companies and some people wanted me to work elsewhere. And, and, and I think at the end of the day, what I realized is I love building tools for people. It is the most satisfying thing and the most captivating thing I have ever done. And 
I feel like I'm just going to keep getting drawn into this. Building developer tools, you know, for folks is something where I feel like if you're a core technologist, the way that, you know, if you're kind of like studied technology and you're obsessed around it, you want to be able to build tools for other people that are using technology. And to me, that's what platforms are and API systems and where like you're supporting infrastructure for all the companies. Maybe it's indicative of this. So, so like, you know, my favorite product of all time ever that's been built is AWS. Because I look at AWS and I, I think about the number of things that have been built, just even conceived because AWS exists. They've built a tremendous business with that. Obviously, it's like a huge part of Amazon. It's so big that they're probably going to split it off, right? It's a huge company, AWS. But think about all the value that's been created in the world because that exists. You know, it's probably trillion dollars of like market cap or who, who even knows, right? Those types of products where the value that they've created is this huge multiple, this huge ratio compared to how much they've captured are true platforms to me. It unlocks creativity. I think that's what allows people to just to do more in the world. And, you know, with WorkOS, I've kind of found this niche that I think is in my mind, what's holding back like enterprise software and tools in the workplace. My hope is that, you know, if we're able to solve this problem around becoming enterprise ready, you know, this like really fractal, complex integration, hard thing that nobody really wants to do, there might be a hundred more Figmas in the world or a hundred more Airtables, you know, or a hundred more Asanas um, that can get built and turn into businesses that people can build up from the bottom up. So I think I would have been pulled into this world one way or the other. You know, I still love physics and, you know, looking at my bookshelf, it's still full of old textbooks and old things. Quantum mechanics is the favorite class I've ever taken by far. I think math uh, explaining the universe is beautiful, but I've really been drawn more towards building tools for people. And I think that's, that's, that's a truth inside of me that I discovered. It's awesome. And you stole one of my final questions, which is going to be, what's your favorite product? I, I yeah. think we've covered that. <laughs> but uh, instead, let's go to like, you know, we, we talked about a lot today. And I, and I do think there's a lot of people that, that maybe are coming out of places like, you know, your alma mater, MIT, or mine, Carnegie Mellon, that are like, hey, we want to build software products. And, and they know how to build for themselves or maybe for others. And they know how to build for consumers. But building for the enterprise is a big challenge, right? Uh, like we talked about today. So if, if you were to summarize kind of your top three, you know, tips for those people, those, you know, CMU engineers or those MIT people or Stanford or whatever, you know, it, it doesn't have to be just one of those schools. What would it be when they're like thinking, well, I'm going to build a, you know, I'm going to solve this big problem. That's eventually going to be an enterprise problem. What should you tell them they need to think about today? <laughs> well, I think the first thing would just be to say, use WorkOS, because this is exactly what we're trying to do with folks. You know, it's, it's a problem space that I've realized as, at, even as we've gone through, it's way deeper and way more challenging than any, you know, company should really be able to do internally. And you should think about using WorkOS just like you think about not running your own data center or, you know, not building your own SMS gateway, just use Twilio, not build your own payment structure, just use Stripe. So that's the first thing. And we're working with a ton of different companies at many, many different stages. Like, you know, the second thing I would say, which kind of goes counter to that a little bit would be, don't worry about it. And what I mean by that is you don't really need this stuff until you have product market fit. And if you're just getting started, you should really obsess over building the right product for the market. That is by far the harder thing to do, the harder thing to find as a gap in the market. And, you know, building enterprise features before you have that is an over-optimization. In the same way, you know, you don't need your database to scale if you have a thousand users, you know, just, yeah, just yeah. really focus on that functionality. But at the same time, you don't want to run into the nihilist problem, right? Of having product market fit and then realizing that it's for the users, but not for the buyers. Exactly. Yeah. So I'd say the third thing is just have it in the back of your head all the time. And 
rather than begrudgingly saying, hey, we're going to have to do this or, you know, I don't really want to do this. I want to avoid it as long as I can, you know, kind of try to embrace it and think about, you know, if you're building a tool, say you're building a new communication tool, sure, you can go get a bunch of small companies to use it and random small startups or individuals, but the people who need that the most, the people that will find the biggest benefit from it are at the largest companies. Those largest organizations, they have the worst tools today. They are desperately in need of new things. And if you care about building tools and changing the way people work and, and building functionality for them, it's, it's sort of your moral duty to serve those larger organizations as well. And so I just encourage people to, to kind of keep in the back of your head, know it's going to be a thing you want to invest in. You know, with your staff, you cannot just talk about it as something you're eventually going to do. And my prediction is it'll happen sooner than later. A lot of times the companies that we talk to don't think that their enterprise really have enterprise customers yet, or they're not really at that enterprise stage. But what happens is they end up having a handful of organizations, maybe their buddy's company that adopted their startups tool. And those orgs are pretty big, hundreds of people, and they start growing, growing, growing. And they're forced with this hard thing where they're still innovating in product. They don't want to lose those customers. What are we going to do? That's like a really great spot for WorkOS to step in and say, hey, it's just, you know, pay as you go. It's cheap infrastructure. We'll scale up with you, but let's help you cross the enterprise chasm today, close those deals, don't lose those customers, and really help those organizations have the impact for what you're building, you know? Yeah, and I liked one other point you made is that, you know, and, and I think it's less today, but it had been more in the past where, where a lot of engineers felt the need to build everything. Like we're going to build our enterprise features or we're going to build our product analytics instead of buying them through Pendo or Guidance or we're going to build our you know SMS gateway and connect to the carriers. I think that trend is quickly moving to why build outside your core competency if you can buy it, right? And yeah. Do you see that continuing? People call it the not invented here syndrome, NIH. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, you know, I've worked places where this this is the case and and I think it's kind of a result, you know, if you hire a really smart engineering team, they can build anything. And you kind of have to pull people off of those smart problems. I like to frame it as risk. So thinking about this as, as risk going forward. So here's an example. So today, uh, Lyft runs on AWS, right? Like they're, and they, when they went public, there was this big thing, how much they pay. They pay AWS like tens of millions of dollars a year. It's huge. Uber does not. Uber runs on the, in their own data center because of an early decision that the founder made. And what this means is that Uber as a company needs to keep hiring engineers to build data center tech. They need to hire executives and PMs and designers for this. And they have to keep pace with Amazon to have infrastructure that's at the same bar as everyone else in the industry. Lyft just gets that by paying Amazon. At that point, it's not even about cost. It's literally about like risk innovation. Now you have to build both ride sharing and be a world-class data center company if that's a core thing supporting your product. And I think looking forward, the ability for companies to be lean, move really quickly and scale up fast, the way to do that is not to build everything in-house and completely own everything at an end. It's saying, hey, let's keep peeling back the onion and find what is the absolute core most unique thing that we are doing and focus all of our energy on that. Every single yeah. dollar we yeah. raise from investment, everything onto that, you know, that center point. 100% agree. Focus on those key differentiators because Nothing otherwise- it matters. Yeah. You know, if, and, and every incremental dollar that you put into that thing, you'll get a better return out of it than putting it in some area that's not your core competency. It's very rare that using AWS or using external vendor makes or breaks your business. And the last thing I say is, you know, if it ends up being an issue down the line, do it later. <laughs> 
You know, if you need to move off AWS, don't do it with your Series A cash. Do it with your Series D cash or whatever. You know, do it with less dilutive capital when you have to do it and keep your team focused on the core competency early on. So. No, I think that's great advice. So, you know, we, we already heard about your favorite product, AWS, which is a great one. <laughs> it's that's a great question, by the way. That's one of my, <laughs> my trick interview questions. I shouldn't say that here, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I like it because there's always threads you can add, you pull down like why or, you know, dig into features and be like, well, what do you think about this feature they just launched? You know, there's always uh, interesting angles to take with that question uh, during interviews. So, and it's a fun one with podcasts too, to hear what different people, you know, have to say where they're coming from. Uh, my final question, which is one I also use during interviews, which is uh, three words to describe yourself. It's a great question. I think I'm a very curious person. This is something that has uh, been the case since I was really young. And, you know, it's related to becoming a voracious reader and just curious about the world and thinking about systems. So that's one thing. Sort of along with that, I've found that I'm pretty restless. And I think that was one reason it was hard, you know, in between the two companies to relax. I was ready to do something next. I was ready to figure out what's next. So so I'm, I'm curious and, and restless and... I think the third thing is I'm pretty optimistic overall. I think, I think it's hard to start companies and not be optimistic, not think about a brighter, more exciting future of what you can enable people. And that's really what carries me through, you know, the ups and downs. 2020 has been a tremendously hard year for everyone, you know, <laughs> in the world for so many different reasons. It's a really challenging time to lead a high growth company and try to make some big bets and big risks. But I'm really optimistic and I think the brightest days specifically also for the world of, you know, cloud SaaS and infrastructure and tools and, and startups are ahead. Awesome. Well, thank you, Michael. I appreciate your time today. Thanks so much for having me.